0: Good morning, faith family. How's everybody doing today? Good, good. This is, uh, as Mark said, a tongue twister of a summer sermon series, but it didn't really feel like summer this morning, did it? It's very gloomy, I suppose. We're going back in time to what our Seattle summers uh, used to feel like. Um, So this morning, uh, as Mark said, I'll be preaching the Great Commission, Matthew 28, specifically 18 through 20. And um, this could be, I thought, considered a softball sermon to try to um, preach. And the more that I spent time with it, and the more I've considered its implications on my life um, over time, the more uh, I think the weight of this passage really uh, was impressed upon me, and, and just the various ways that it could be taken. So um, I pray that you'd be with me this morning as we walk through this together, and um, and that it would challenge us and encourage us. So would you join me in prayer, God? Would your spirit please uh, move in my words that I might not just be a man speaking up here, God, but instead would I be preaching uh, truth in love um, and the power of the spirit and that each and every one of uh, the, the individuals gathered here today, um, would their hearts be uh, encouraged uh, or admonished or directed um, or reframed in the ways that only you can do, God, as you take uh, words out of your scripture that you've given to us and um, put them to action in our hearts and our minds. Amen. Well, um, as another point, I was told that Mark would not be here today. So he is here front and center. So I'll try not to let that nervousness of his presence uh, affect what I'm going to say. But I am excited again to share something that I do know the Lord has placed on my heart for a number of years. um, As he's uh, done the good work in my heart of um, sanctification over time that is still far, far from complete. Um, another thing before I get going is that the Great Commission is something that I think ties beautifully into one of the core values of this church. Now it's not one of the one of the T's that we have. You know, the toast, the tourniquet, the table, and the other one that I can't remember off the top of my head. The toast. Did I say that already? Yeah. Towel. There it is. Uh, service. Um, but it is tied into the way that we conclude all of these times together, which is to go forth and be a blessing to the city of Seattle and beyond and uh, when i first attended a sunday here uh, almost eight years ago with with my lovely wife ellie that hit me that you know this isn't just a time for us to come and consume it's a time for us to come and be shaped and encouraged and go forth and bless and that is one of the things that is at the crux of the great commission that jesus gave us right before his ascension so i'm going to ask you a question and don't answer just think and ponder this What comes to mind when you think of the word evangelism? What comes to mind? Um, For some, it's a dirty word. Uh, For some, it's an exciting word. Uh, For some, it's a very specific and contextual word that is only relevant for certain people. Um, I want to divide your probable responses in your minds. I can't know your minds, but I think you're probably falling into one of three buckets of thought around this word evangelism, and that's excitement an uncertainty of what the definition might even be, or a general nervousness, um, because you're a Christian. And you know this is probably important, but you don't know how or how it's done. You don't like the pressure that that word gives you. those Those are my assumptions. Um, so forgive me if you fall into a bucket that's not in one of those. But my goal, and I'll just read it here verbatim as I've been thinking about this, is to help us through the definition of that word. and specifically, to reframe our modern and sometimes muddied understanding of evangelism by rooting us in the proper biblical context found in Matthew's Great Commission. This rerooting has the power to free us from cultural baggage and to boldly and effectively fulfill the joyful duty of making disciples of all nations. You with me? Beautiful. So let's read the text, and I'm reading from the ESV here. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and I just... I want and I pray for you all to just listen to my words. And I know it's going to be up on the screen, um, but I'm going to read it twice. One time you can read through it with me, and and the second time I would ask that you would just think through it, meditate on the words, um, and and just hear what the Spirit is speaking to you in this specific passage. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Why don't you listen to me read that one more time as you meditate on these words from Jesus. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So let's just go through all the different key points in that and unpack it just a little bit. And in that, I want to direct us into one specific place that we're going to go with this passage. So, first, we see power and authority. God has given Jesus all authority over all creation that we experience every day things that are seen and things that are unseen. And the cross is his decisive victory. So that's point one in this passage. Two, we are to make disciples. Well, disciples of whom, you might ask? Well, it's disciples of Jesus. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time here today. But I want to just highlight the other just amazing truths in this passage before we move on. Nations, who are making disciples, deci- disciples we're making of are these nations. The word here in the Greek used is ethnos or ethne, which is a body of persons united by kinship, culture, and common traditions. This word has different meanings throughout Scripture, and the primary usage here, most scholars believe, is to refer to a diverse group of people. Not nation-states, as our modern context typically teaches us, but instead, people, ethnos, you know, ethnicities. That we're a a diverse group of people that don't all just look or think the same. Well, let me be careful with that. We don't all look the same. There are some core things we think the same about because of our love in Christ and how that's transformed our mind. But we bring diversity to the table, and Paul spends a lot of time unpacking this in letters to Galatians and Ephesians, Um, so just to keep that in mind, that we're to be baptizing in the name of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that we worship a triune God, a triune God who is united, uh, who is complete in and of himself, to be satisfied in that relationship of power and glory, and we have the opportunity to share that nature of that triune God with others and the power that that triune God brings. That we're to teach them to observe all commandments. This is one that can often be forgotten, especially in our modern context. We're not just telling people to love. We're telling people how to love. Jesus has told us the way in which we're to live as salt and light. The way in which we're to live as a fragrant aroma. um, The way in which we're to live to point people to Christ. Uh, This isn't just a a permissive behavior of anything goes, just do it in, in love however you define it. This is observe my commandments that God is still the God of perfection and holiness, um, and that uh, Christ's victory on the cross has purchased our ability to be in relationship with him, not because of our own work and merit, um, but because of that grace. And it's through that grace that we can then be perfected in those commandments. And finally, that he's with us. We're not in this whole situation alone. Uh, We're not doing this out of our own strength, but we're doing this with God, walking by our side in power, to open up others' hearts for our words to be planted in fertile soil. And by our words, I mean the words that God has given us through the truth in his scripture. So that's a lot in two verses, isn't it? That's a lot of truth. So there are a lot of different directions this sermon could go, and I recognize that. I want to focus on making disciples and what that means and how we can understand then what it means to be an evangelical Christian, what it means to evangelize, in an encouraging and proper context. So let's start with this question. What is the point of salvation? Is it purely for us? Is it about me having a personal relationship with Jesus? And as long as I'm good with that, then that's all that matters. Is it about my satisfaction? Is it about my blessing? Is it about my health? Is it about my my anxiety being ridden from me? No, not at all. That is a big component of it. But that is not where the story ends. And the Great Commission points us in that direction, that we are to be sent out, not to be sent in. We are to be focused toward others, not focused on ourselves. And I want to make this even more clear. John says in his gospel, in John 7, 38, whoever believes in me as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It doesn't say for that person who believes They'll be satisfied by rivers of living water, although that's said elsewhere. It doesn't say, you know, you'll, you'll be a well that you get to tap anytime you want for your own blessing. No, it says, out of your heart will flow wells of living, or rivers, sorry, of living water. And that quote, which I can see here and you can't see, it's a quote within a quote. And um, Jesus, who's speaking this, is referencing Old Testament prophecy about what the kingdom of God looks like. And I'll speak about this a little a little later, but, you know, bear with me here in this example. In, in the Old Testament, the kingdom of Israel was a come-and-see kind of kingdom. It was God blessing one people so that they could be held up as this crown jewel to say, this is what the blessing of God looks like. This is what I intended for creation. This is my people whom I have chosen to go forth and be salt light in the world, but by showing off their magnificence, right, given the cultural context that God was working through for the, that period of time, and this is very well studied, in, uh, you know, from a lot of Old Testament scholarship. That post cross moved into a go and tell paradigm, which is what I'm talking about in part today. It's a go and tell the good news, and the glory of God and His power reigning and ruling here on earth through your life as you go make disciples. And it's amazing because so many people, and I'm victim of this, didn't understand. What exactly that meant to go out the out of you will flow streams of living water this isn't a new paradigm per se that you know god just invented because the old one wasn't working this is what he was pointing to the entire time and in his perfect timing and wisdom it was culminated in the cross of christ and so i just i love this passage because it shows jesus recognizing this is where we started with an eye of where we were going and now we're here and out of all of our hearts who believe in jesus and are satisfied by him will flow streams of living water Um, I do want to recognize, again, before we go on, just context of the Great Commission. There are three other Great Commissions, if you will, or three other accounts of the Great Commission, I should say. Mark, Luke, and John, the other Gospels. Uh, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20. And all four of these do focus on a different aspect of the Great Commission as Jesus spoke it. And I don't want to move past that because that's important to recognize. What I do think this shows us is that there is a holistic picture of what it means to be a Christian And God has given us different angles to look into that because we all come from different backgrounds and contexts and go through different things and different challenges and have different gifts where all of these different contexts will be either more or less relevant. And so I just want to highlight those. In Mark, he highlights signs of confirmation that, you know, this is you will be known by these signs of confirmation, signs of power that I will show that the power is present in you. Luke 24, he emphasizes repentance, turning away from your uh, old fleshly desires and behaviors and turning to instead a relationship with Jesus. And then John 20, uh, an emphasis of peace, that we go forward in peace. um, And that, we'll see no more than just peace. So, another question how do we go on and accomplish this mission? Um, The message today is a message that is extremely contextual. And I believe that if we can frame up this idea of evangelism or making disciples properly, that it will be extra powerful for each and every one of us and freeing, given the culture that we live in, Seattle. We live around the Seattle freeze. I'm born and raised here, and I know no different. But I'll tell you, I know different when I go to other cities. I understand exactly what the Seattle freeze is because people in coffee shops just approach you differently. The waiters and waitresses in a restaurant approach you differently. People in line, when you're waiting for something, it's just, it's different. We live in a closed-off society here. And so the paradigm some of us might have brought into our minds when I asked you, what does evangelicalism, what does that even mean? Um, You might say, well, it's hard here because people don't want to hear what I have to say if I just go say something to them. And that is true. I believe it's true. It is harder. And so as Christians... This dynamic can lead us here in the city with our context being as hard as it is to look at evangelicalism or evangelism, sorry, as the answer for the broader church, not us, but this broader group of people out here without having any practical implication and understanding for what it means for us. We effectively can outsource Jesus's call in the Great Commission to paid ministers, to other people who just seem to have a gift for it, to the Billy Grahams of the world, whatever it might be. It's their job. It's not my job. Again, this gets back to that personal relationship dynamic versus other-oriented relationship dynamic. So with that in mind, let's dig into the history of the word evangelism. It's going to get a little academic. I apologize, but I think it's going to be helpful to, again, frame up this whole conversation. Evangelism, as we know it today in English, comes from the Greek word evangelion. Can you say that with me? Evangelion. Yeah, sounds a lot like evangelism, doesn't it? And that's because evangelism is just the transliteration of that word into English. It's a brand new word. It was created by William Tyndale, some most believe, in 1531, where he was the person who brought the Bible into common English, and which is what sparked just an enormous growth of... Um, of Bible-believing Christians throughout the world, because instead of getting it through a priest and through a kind of a broker as they were before, they can engage with the word in their own language, the common people's language. And so this word is a product of that. And just as an aside, it's kind of cool. William Tyndale is credited with actually creating the English language that we know today, really. Not just, oh, I translated the Bible. He codified so many brand new words that didn't even exist before today because of his work in translating the Bible in that context. So I think that's that's pretty cool. That's fun. Um, Anyway, Evangelion evangelism, first used by him in 1531, he exhorted them to proceed constantly in the evangelical truth. And that's a quote from William Tyndale. Evangelical truth defined as the gospel as we know it, that we live in a relationship with Jesus. Um, in the same century during the Protestant Reformation, Protestant theologians embraced the term as referring to gospel truth. So there are some roots here for where we came from 500 years ago in this word and as far as uses in the bible go it's pretty thin because it's not directly used in the bible not as you might think at least the four gospels are called the four evangelists the four euangelions and the we translate that word also to mean to us the four gospels the good news and the closest example we have of kind of the modern use of the word evangelicalism um, or evangelism, I'm sorry, I keep saying that, is kind of this um, passage in Luke 10, 1 through 10, where Jesus sends out the 72 and says, go in pairs of two. You know, this is, I've heard it referred to as the Mormon model in some that are skeptical of Christianity and just go knock on doors, preach in cities and bring the good news that Jesus is here. And this is pre-resurrection, of course, pre-crucifixion. Um, th- that's some of the context that we come from. Um, and I do want to say just really quickly, door-knocking, as I'll call it in this moment, isn't bad. I'm not here to um, to say that that's not a good model. What I do want to say is that specifically in that context, the, the door-knocking, if you will, that happened in, was it Luke? Yes, Luke 10, was done in a context of a people who were expecting the Messiah and who were talking about what it looked like to seek the Messiah. They didn't necessarily think it was Jesus, although some did, But they were awaiting salvation from their Roman oppressors. They were ripe. And so if someone comes into their town and says, the Messiah's here, everybody gathers in the town square and says, tell me more, where is he and how do I know him? And let's look at his power to experience salvation because they were expecting an earthly kingdom. They weren't necessarily expecting the kingdom that Jesus brought. So again, that's if we go door knocking in Seattle, we're not necessarily going to get that reception because the salvation that people in our city are expecting uh, doesn't look like the cross. Because that's foolishness in the eyes of the world, as as we're told in Scripture. So, context, what does this word mean today, then? If we fast forward 500 years from its first uses and its biblical origins, um, what does it mean today? Well, it means different things to different people. And I really want us to just, again, understand the messiness of this whole context so that we can be encouraged through it. First, it kind of means a denomination, Evangelical Christians, perhaps. I mean, that's not really a denomination, but I've been asked the question before, Are you an evangelical Christian? To which I respond, What do you mean by that exactly? I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, but it, yeah, I mean, I I know that term is bantied about often in the media. The death of the evangelical church is another headline we see from time to time. So we have a denomination. Sometimes I think of like a fire and brimstone preacher on the street corner where you know you go to a mariner's game and there's that person with a sandwich board and a megaphone saying, you know, judgment is near, you're all going to hell, believe in Jesus, and they'll point to passages from John and Revelation and a couple from Matthew. So some some people think of that just a one-to-many kind of um, message in that direction. Uh, a paid pastor, as I mentioned before, like a minister, it's their job to preach the gospel and to make sure people hear it. Um, or uh, missionaries, paid missionaries who are going overseas into contexts that are not their own, that's another one. Uh, stadium sermons perhaps like a a promise keepers kind of dynamic or you know think of like a billy graham kind of dynamic or we think of you know you scroll through the channels on a sunday morning not that i don't know anyone does this anymore in the world of streaming but uh, the the televangelist that my grandma used to watch in her chair on a sunday morning because she didn't want to go to church i shouldn't say that because she could not go to church um, from for health reasons um some some of us think of that uh and even it has been. This is, I think, the fun part of my little list here: the, the non-religious application. I shouldn't say non-religious, non-spiritual application, because everything gets down to religion at the end of the day. It's what are you religious for, Jesus or the world? Uh, so here's a fun quote um, from uh, the Times Literary Supplement talking about its, you know, its academic approach to understanding communism throughout history, and it speaks to the rise and fall of evangelical fervor within the socialist movement is obviously completely devoid of any context rooted in scripture it's just were these people excited about telling the gospel of communism in that it's the good news it's the salvation so there's one and then my favorite coming from the business world is where it's used in job titles so i just did a quick search through linkedin of you know companies hiring evangelists and you know didn't look at any churches and uh i think this is on my next page here looking through um yeah different titles here so you could go be a, a marketing technology evangelist Or you could go be a principal evangelist. Or you could go be a product evangelist. You could go be an open source analyst evangelist. Or you could be an open source evangelist, if no analytics are needed. I just think that's fun. Um, And so, again, completely removed from any context that we're talking about here. And then the final one, and this is one where I want to bring it back home for us as we move forward. Some of us, it means that 30-second elevator pitch. That that gospel that we're expected to have on hand for when we're supposed to share the good news all of a sudden. And I know for me, growing up, that bred a lot of anxiety because I didn't know what in the world to say. I didn't know how to say it. I didn't feel that the news that I had was good enough that anyone else who didn't already believe in it really needed to hear it. And that's powerful, I think. I think that's a good, we'll get into this a little later, that's a check engine light for two reasons. One, Am I misunderstanding my call to be salt and light in the world, or two, do I actually love Jesus enough to think that someone else should love him the way that Jesus has loved me and that I love him? So the impact of all of this confusion around a single word that is both so central to the external perception and the lived reality of the Christian life is tremendous. It accomplishes exactly, I believe it accomplishes exactly what the devil wants, which is inaction. So out of either a laziness or an honest misunderstanding, we hear our own brothers and sisters in Christ saying things like, preaching is for the preachers. But these are my non-Christian friends. They're just not interested in what I have to say. Or I tried telling her about Jesus once and it didn't go well, so I'm just going to let that be and I'll move on and we'll, we'll both pretend it never happened. Or out of an embarrassment for association, we hear our own brothers and sisters in Christ say, keep your faith to yourself. How many times have we heard that just floating around in the, in our church lives over the last couple decades? Your faith's for you, and that's good if it stays in that context. Or, um, I don't align with any organized church. Uh, I just love Jesus. Or, mission work is just modern colonialism and elitism. Uh, friends, I want us to recognize the extreme danger of having confusion around this central term in our Christian faith and the mission that God has called us to, God's purpose for us is to spread his name through the earth and bring him glory through his people, through us, in an act of covenant partnership. Now, I do, before we go any further, I want to do just a quick reset just to clear up. I've said a lot, and you know, some people have nodded. I'm sure some people have maybe crossed their arms and said, I feel like you're you're kind of attacking right now, or or, you know, I don't really understand what's going on. I thought I understood these terms and I don't. So let me just do a quick reset. There is an important time and place for one-to-many evangelism in that sense. This is biblical, it is practical, it is powerful, and it can be God-breathed and spirit-empowered. A good example is Paul's famous sermon on Mars Hill. Um, I don't know if you're all familiar, but this is where he went into the, the secular square, if you will, and he had an open dialogue with all of the great thinkers of the time, the people who just love to sit around on couches, if you will, and just, what are you thinking? Oh, that's interesting. What are you thinking? That's interesting. That's interesting. Go into that a little more. I want to pick your brain. It was very kind of clinical in that sense. And through that work that he did on Mars Hill, um, there were many that were saved. There were, there were many that were called into a relationship with Jesus. Um, so I, I don't want to undo those paradigms. What I want to do is make the paradigm that we might have more inclusive of the tools that God has called us all to use in our lives. Primarily, the overarching tool of discipleship and the power that discipleship has in our largely post-Christian context here in Seattle, let alone in Seattle, in the West that we live in, discipleship has the power to press the undo button on the preconceived notions that so many of our neighbors and friends have of what it means to be a Christian. It can wipe the slate clean. It performs the great reset, and ultimately it allows us to live in the self-sacrificial way that Jesus called us to, which is to take up our cross and follow him to live a life of service and a life of love other oriented love discipleship by nature by nature is largely opposed to the interest of the self in its fleshly form so it focuses and forces a lot of functions all at once all while being an extremely effective tool for building god's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven now, there's, there's a bit of an asterisk to this as well. It also means that it can cause a lot of people to turn and hate us. We need to be ready for that. And they should, and they will, if they do, if we're doing this in the power of the Spirit biblically, hate us, not because of our own uh, behavior, necessarily rooted in the flesh, our own sin, or our own human, human foolishness. They'll hate us because of Christ. And we see this powerfully presented in 2 Corinthians, and where we are the aroma of life to those moving to life, and we are the aroma of death to those moving toward death. Both can happen simultaneously, and we'll dig into that a little more here in a minute. But if those turn to love God and love us through who we're pointing God to be, then we can rejoice in the saving work of the Spirit as we, in partnership with the Spirit, push back the kingdom of darkness in our context, in our work, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our grocery stores, in our communities, in our kickboxing gyms, in our preschool groups, in our you fill in the blank, even here in the body of Christ. As we work to build each other up and encourage each other to then go out and make disciples and be a blessing to the city of West Seattle and beyond. So let's let's reframe ourselves around a new definition of evangelism that I would like to present to you. Evangelism is simply the all-encompassing term for letting people in on the best news history has ever known. Um, Say it again, because it's very simple. And some of you might already be with me and have been with me for 20 minutes, and I apologize. But evangelism is simply the all-encompassing term for letting people in on the best news that history has ever known. And this can be done a number of ways then. Preaching, one to many. Sharing, as I'm defining it, one to few. Uh, Discipleship, one to one. Service, and so on. Different ways in which we are Living out our call to be salt and light. That's one thing I want you to see here with these last few examples. So consider discipling as the deep work that follows the evangelism. Here's a metaphor for you. Uh, You have a dear friend who has convinced you to run an Ironman. Aren't you excited? I have a friend that wants to do this, our dear friend Kevin. I say our Ellie and I's dear friend Kevin, who's just into extreme running. He'll go run. Just, it just insane races and insane, insane conditions. And an Ironman is just, now it's down here for him compared to the, the runs that he runs. And so your friend has convinced you to run an Ironman in the spring of 2024. So you've got about two years, a little less than two years. It's in a beautiful setting. You're excited. It's gonna be a wonderful race, but you have a lot of work to do. And that work is rewarding, but it is still work. And you get over time to see the fruit of that labor. So the evangelism here is your friend convincing you this is a beautiful race worth running, and you're in. And the discipleship, so to speak, is that that training, and it is that work that transforms your, of course, in this example, your physical body, um, but the application here is much more broad than that. Let me just think about this for a minute here. I think in all of this, there is a lot of work involved. And it is. And everything I said should point to that, that we are to be salt and light who give ourselves for others in the way that Christ gave ourselves to us. But that shouldn't be an encouragement or a discouragement. We should be encouraged in looking at Christ who looked at each of us through his word and said, I'm calling you to take up your cross and follow me. You will live a life of service. You will live the blessed life. And through that blessed life, you will experience true satisfaction in me. And in that, you will Bring about through my power as Jesus, human flourishing. Human flourishing doesn't come from selfishness, it comes from selflessness. And that is something that is antithetical to the narrative that we're told here in our culture. And not even just today, this is something that is largely antithetical to the narrative we've been told in our culture for decades. And it is powerful work and hard work to undo that, to look at this and say, yes, this discipleship work that I'm going to have to do, this deep work both in myself and in others pointing them to jesus it's going to be work but it's going to be good work so don't let that word that sentiment be a discouragement again let it be an encouragement that this is the life jesus has called us into and the promise on the other side of that is true full satisfaction and relationship in uh in uh, relationship with jesus in power with jesus so what is the goal of the church in this frame of reference and this is an important definition there's as mark has heard me say a number of times the way i look at it is the big c church and the little c church and this is not my definition this is a broader definition big c church is the body of christ is what jesus calls us to participate in this is an outer working of the big c church we are acting as his body in relationship with him it is not a building or a staff necessarily it is a local assembly of a group of believers. We see this in 1 Corinthians 1-2, 2 Corinthians 1-1, Galatians, Galatians 1-2. one These are people who are gathering together to make much of Jesus and encourage each other to then pour out in their communities. So our goal should not be just to bring people to a building on a Sunday and hope the pastor has a good message and that the band plays well and that the coffee tastes good. And as someone who sometimes plays music and sings up here, I know that I'm worried when I'm up here playing and singing that if I sing a wrong note or play a wrong note, um, there will be judgment passed for that because I've heard it before and I myself have passed judgment. We in our American context think of church as a consumeristic engagement. We say, I want to find a church that fills me up. I want to find a church that has better music. I want to find a church that has a better kids program. And again, these aren't necessarily bad things, don't hear me wrong, but they're not ultimate things when we are looking for a big sea church, when we're looking for a body of believers to go deep in life with. Our goal, again, is not just to find a vessel to dump people over into that we meet and say, I hope it turns out well when you show up to church. I hope you're convinced my work is done, you know, like, like a, a top-level salesperson, if you will. That is not our goal. Instead, our goal is to bring the body of Christ, the church, the big sea church, to our neighbors to go and tell, to make disciples, to put God's glory on full display by living out his gospel for all to see. The Great Commission could have told us a number of things. It could have said, go and grow in your personal relationship with God. It did not. It could have said, go and build synagogues. Synagogues being the word that would have made the most sense there in the first century uh, uh, Jewish mindset. It did not say that. It could have said, go and grow in safe." Christian communities filled exclusively with people of shared values. It could have said, go attend a community group. It could have said, go be a good Lord's Day attendee, never never missing a Lord's Day church meeting. Could have said a lot of these things, but it didn't. Now, again, hear me rightly, it's not that these things are bad, it's just that they are not ultimate. They're not our mission. When When they become our mission, that's when what we live into uh, what Jesus defines throughout the pages of scripture as empty religion. When we have the danger of becoming like the Pharisees who are like whitewashed tombs, where on the outside, we're pristine, we're doing the right things, we're checking the boxes, we're living the life that we think is the good life by our own definition, but inside we're filled with dead people's bones and rotting flesh. That's the danger. We hollow out the intent of Jesus, that that Jesus has for our lives. And again, this is all part of that broader shift uh, of God's people from being a come-and-see kind of people to, again, a go-and-tell kind of people. And the Great Commission in all of this has a powerful effect on our reality as Christians and our relationship with God. It takes us, again... ...from being people who focus on our own benefit, and again, focuses us out on the benefit of others. Whether that be financial benefit, whether that be acts of service and whatnot, or whether that just be looking out for the the good uh, work of salvation to be done in others. Which, I think we could all agree is the most important thing. As we see in scripture, you can die with all the money in the world, and if you don't have Christ, it is meaningless... And there is one true treasure that we have in heaven, moth and rust destroy all else. And I'll tell you what, with inflation the way it is, with uh, just destruction of property, destruction of life that we see not only in this season, but throughout all of our history, you know, the 20th century was the most bloody and violent century on the history books that we've experienced so far, as far as loss of life and just evil, um, It's all moth and rust. Moth and rust destroy everything we could possibly build up on this world. It could all be taken away in in a moment. Um, But God has given us a true relationship with him that can last forever and build up that treasure. So what is discipleship? I'm gonna read through a couple different definitions because everyone has their own spin on it. And there are people much smarter than me that have spent decades devoted to the study of this. So let's start with John Piper and his definition. The process of being taught How to think and feel and act as a Christian. That is, a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is one who embraces him as Lord and Savior and treasure. What about Charles Ellicott, one of the most famous Christian scholars of the 19th century? He defined it as this, a little more technically. The Greek verb is the same that which is rendered uh, instructed in Matthew 13, 52, and it is formed out of the noun for disciple. The word recognizes the principle of succession in the apostolic office. The disciples, having learnt fully what their master, their rabbi, had to teach them, were now to become, in their turn, as scribes of the kingdom of heaven, the teachers of others. It is to say, the least suggestive, that this solemn commission and the stress should be laid on the teaching rather than on what is known as the sacerdotal element of the Christian ministry. Wow, sacerdotal. That means specifically relating to priests and things that are priestly. So what he's essentially saying in the last part is, the stress should be laid on teaching one another and living in a life that points in that teaching rather than the priestly element, rather than the synagogue, rather than the little c church. In his book, The Great Omission, Dallard Willis writes, the great issue facing the world today whether those by whose profession of culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him now to live the form of the kingdom of heaven into every corner of human existence. Additionally, Willard goes on to say that a great misconception of the 21st century church is that we can be Christians forever and never become disciples. Again, this ties back to that self-oriented view of Christianity versus the other oriented uh view of Christianity. And now in discipleship we might ask what is our purpose? Is it to um, put myself in a position to be a great teacher? People look at me and make much of me? Uh, and the answer is it's a little obvious, but the answer is no. <laughs> it's not our goal is to bring glory to God and has always been to bring glory to God. And I just want to root us in the Old Testament context for that as we move through three passages and then final uh, or rather finish with one in Revelation that ties it all together. So um, just listen to me here. These, these won't show up on the slide. But 1 Samuel 12, uh, 20 through 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake. His great namesake, for God's great namesake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Again, he's making you a people for himself, not for your sake, but for his sake. Because it glorifies him and makes much of him. Second Chronicles six twenty uh, sorry, 32 through 33. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house... Hear from heaven your dwelling place, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name, God's name, and fear you, God, as you as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Uh, I love this passage because it does two things. It highlights that old dynamic of come and see Israel versus the go and tell. And two, it again it shows the purpose of all of that. It's not to make Israel's name great. It's through The great perception of Israel that God might be made great. Ezekiel 36, 20 through 23. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And again, God speaking to Israel. This is, you know, a prophetic word to Israel saying, you've also profaned my name. And all nations will know that I am the Lord. How will all nations know in this context that he is the Lord? Because his name will be made great because people will see the wonderful works of God. And again, this is in a context pre-cross. How much more are we able to point to God in a context post-cross, post-resurrection, with the power of the Spirit and the outpouring of that work in our lives? And finally here, Revelation 5, 9 through 13. And they, being the Christians, the body of believers, the saints, all the different words you could use there, and they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, For you, Jesus, were slain, and by your blood, Jesus, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a great kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. This is a wonderful turn of phrase, essentially to mean you can't count them. Innumerable numbers of creatures, all singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's it. That's the culmination, friends, that we are here to bring glory to the... Let me just read that again. It's so beautiful. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is Jesus to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Back to the text here. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor glory and might forever and ever. What a beautiful thing. So that's our purpose is to bring glory to God and, you know, our, our top level purpose, right? But looking at this, we might say, well, that's great. I still don't have a clue what discipleship looks like in my life. And so that's where we're headed is some brass tacks. Characteristics of discipleship from the lens of a disciple. This is what I see as a progression through that. It starts with Presence moves into observation, continues with dialogue, asking questions, continues in strength with study, moves into admiration from that study, and then moves into imitation from that study and admiration that ultimately works itself out into evangelism, which starts the loop off with somebody else, right? And they then go through that loop and then so on and so forth. So let me just say that again without the the filler words. I'm just going to go through these top level words. Presence, observation, dialogue, study, admiration, imitation, evangelism. And in all of this, we're talking about making disciples of Jesus, right? So this is important to keep front of mind. We need to live and act and think and support and admonish and encourage and respond all in a way that points people to Jesus because it is him they should ultimately see working in us, And so, in all of this, it is crucial that we have a love of Christ to be a discipler. So work with me here through some other texts here from, from uh, Scripture. A love of Christ and its presence in our lives will naturally force the function of making disciples because we will be living examples of the power of Christ. So here from 2 Corinthians 2.14, you heard me mention parts of this uh, passage earlier, but I'll read it in full. You, church, are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. It is worthless. For you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. I'm sorry, that was Matthew five thirteen through 14. 2 Corinthians is the next one. But either way, what we see in that is that we are known by the fruit of our works and our love. And in here, in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. And to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Let me say that one more time. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those things, uh, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrant, a fragrance from death to death and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. Did you hear that? We are not for so many peddlers of God's word. We're not salespeople. We're not cheap street side preachers in that sense where all we care about is what we have to say and we want to hawk the gospel. We are not peddlers of God's word as Paul put it, but instead men of sincerity as commissioned by God and in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. catch that? That's interesting, isn't it? And this, you know, I could have just said that and I suppose called it good. I hope that points to and validates some of the things that I was leading up to this point with. Another key point here is that there is a love that transforms us. So we can ask the question, what is the role of love in discipleship? And this is from John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another by this. By what? By this, by this love. All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And again, this isn't like a a worldly definition of love where it's permissive and you do you and I would be unloving if I ever got in the way of whatever your agenda is for the day, the month, the year, for your lifetime. No, this is love, as it says here, Just as I, Jesus speaking here, just as I loved you. Jesus didn't allow his disciples to do whatever they wanted. He convicted them. He encouraged them. He admonished them. He pointed them ultimately to his father saying, this is what it looks like to be my disciples. You have a way you need to live and a way you should live and a way you want to live when you recognize what I am about to do for you on the cross. And there's also, after love then, there's a truth that transforms us. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So in all of this, we need to ask ourselves the question, is the reality of Christ crucified, resurrected and ruling the most exciting reality in your life? Ask yourself this question. Really, not not out loud. Ask yourself this question today, this week, and be brutally honest with yourself in the answer. Pray on this question. Is the reality of Christ crucified, risen, and reigning and ruling the most exciting reality in your life today? Because if it's not, there will inevitably always be other gospels to share. There will always be other good news instead. There will always be that news article that takes precedence over the difficult conversation that instead could happen as someone works through something um, unclear or uncertain in their life. There will always be that new car that came out you want to talk to your friend about. There will always be that new trip that you want to go on you want to talk about. There will always be that trip you came from that you want to talk about. There will always be that political candidate that you want to talk about. There will always be other good news. And so if the gospel as we understand it isn't the good news, then we might have an affection problem in our hearts. And so this again, as I mentioned before, can be a very powerful check engine light. I want to end this little section here with uh, with a quote uh, from a song. Chris Thiel, who is the lead singer and mandolinist, there aren't many mandolinists in the world who are of fame, uh, from a band called Nickel Creek, who I just admire. They're a folk band from the early 2000s. Um, he, uh, I, you know, don't know, the Lord knows where his heart stands today, but he was raised in a Christian background, and at the time was writing these songs, had really just kind of left that, went to the world and fame and whatnot and all that it brought as a distraction. Listen to these lyrics, and I think this illustrates how this can be such a powerful check engine light for us. I won't sing the lyrics, I'll just read them. And the song title, sorry, the song title is Doubting Thomas, which is just, you know, that's obvious and, and where, where I'm going with this. Sometimes I pray for a slap in the face. Then I beg to be spared because I'm a coward. If there's a master of death, I bet he's holding his breath because I show the blind and tell the deaf about his power. I'm a doubting Thomas. I can't keep my promises because I don't know what's safe. Oh, me of little faith. And you realize if I, you know, as I've done this, this analysis myself over a decade, it says a lot about my heart if I look at these words and they ring true. Do I believe the power of God if, if I tell the blind, or what is it, if I show the blind who can't see and tell the deaf who can't hear about his power? So with the time that we have left here, I want to get into some how-to's as as we end this time we all operate in different contexts and i know i've said this before but i just want to say it again um i'm i'm not nor should i be able to provide a specific list of how to's that are accurate for each and every one of us that is the power of discipleship because if i were to or any of us were to be in a 1 to 1 or 1 to 3, 1 to 4 relationship with any number of us in the room if we're going through life as a community, we could teach and encourage and admonish each other because we know each other's context. Up here in this setting, i only know a number of you in the room. Actually, by God's grace, i know quite a few of you in the room, but i don't know all of you and i don't know exactly what you're struggling with or what you're encouraged by or what your talents are. So I am not able to say, here are the 15 things that each and every one of you can take as truth and go forward and make disciples and have all your questions answered. So instead, we're going to keep it principle-oriented. And there are many different potential contexts. I just want you to think about specifically the places where you spend most of your day. Um, Some of us are employed gainfully outside of the home, and so there's the work context. Some of us are employed in the home, if you will, and there's the family context, um, many of us have neighbors. I think most of us in the room that I know have neighbors who you share a property line with. None of us are out in the country somewhere with a you know 15-acre plot. Uh, we all have friends. And these are, again, just places that we spend a lot of our time. Some of us have that restaurant we frequent every week with that bartender or that um, waitress or waiter that we talk to and know by name and know their story. So there are many other contexts. Again, I want you to ask yourself this diagnostic. Where do I spend most of my time? And then within that, Where are some of these places that I can then take and apply these nine things and think about how to open up my life around these nine things within the context of what evangelism really is, what discipleship can look like. So specifically here, the first is also one of the values we hold here at the hollows, which is the table. The table, the meals that happen at the table, this can be a powerful way for us to enter into conversation with people who we share life with directly or indirectly. I'm thinking specifically coworkers, um, people who we you know go to gyms with or people who we have as our neighbors. I know Ellie and I, well, I guess they're in the cry room now, but um, Ellie and I have had a lot of fun just having neighbors over for dinner. Who doesn't wanna come over for dinner? And sure, COVID has complicated this a bit and I, I recognize that. And it's easier now than it was a year and a half ago. It was impossible two years ago just about, but the table is a way to have honest conversations and ask questions and do all of these other things I'm about to get into here in a minute, but to just open the door for the spirit to work and figure out, yeah, neighbor, why why do you have a perspective that you have? Or what is the perspective that you have? Or what motivates you? What fuels you in a given day? What gets you out of bed? So the table, again, is a powerful thing. Uh, two, open yourself up to inconveniences. And I am personally Convicted of this, because you know, up till a couple of years ago, and kids really changed this a lot. With with our little almost two year old, we just had the most scheduled life. There was always something going on. There was never time for anything, and I wore it as a badge of honor. And now I look back and see it not as a badge of honor, but as a badge of immaturity and and partial shame. In the sense that it kept me from being present for people who otherwise I could have been present for in their various contexts. Whether they were going through a good time or going through a bad time and needed help. So open yourself up to inconveniences essentially just means don't plan every hour of the day. Give yourself space for that run-in with a neighbor where you say, oh, you have dinner plans tonight? If you have um, a schedule that isn't planned to the T, you might actually have time for a dinner that night. You might be able to go get takeout or go to a restaurant or have them over for the meal that you planned. And this just goes on and on. The application goes on and on there for opening yourself up to inconveniences. Um, th- uh, three, and this this is a powerful one, that we need to be living in prayer. We need to pray for God to fulfill his great commission. And this is actually modeled in scripture, Acts 4, 29 through 30, and I won't read the passage, but we are called to pray for God to help fulfill that work in our lives um, and to give us boldness in that. So spend time in prayer Ask God to put people on your hearts and minds. And this is, we're not just talking about going and finding the lost, although that's important. This is also people who are you know, in, in a Christian context in your life. These are all sorts of people. People who the spirit might be saying, spend time with that person. They need encouragement. Or spend time with that person. You need encouragement and they can provide it to you. Or spend time with that person. They've been asking themselves about what it means to be a Christian for a decade and haven't had anyone come into their life to do that. Um, this is actually, I'll go for a little aside story here. There's this pastor I was hearing preach in the D.C. area um, who was telling about a time that he had a moment like this happen to him. And this ties into a lot of the different things. I'm going to hold that to the end because it ties into so many different things. I'll use that as a capstone for some of these points. So forget what I just said. We're moving on. Um, Four, ask questions. Jesus on the road to Emmaus is a great example of this. There are many others, but where Jesus, the resurrected Christ, think of this, he's just Come up from the dead. He's raised from the dead. He's walking around in the world that he created as a resurrected, living savior, and he sees some disciples, two disciples, who are walking out of Jerusalem, going back home, and they're distraught because you know they thought that this was going to be it. They thought that Christ was here, and that the Messiah was here, and you know the the, uh, the ruling reigning king was going to change everything, and the Roman oppression would be ended. All these preconceiveds they had are and he walks next to them and as they're on the road he says what's going on and they're like what do you what do you mean what's going on like do you have you have you been dead is kind of what they say like do you know anything have you been living under a rock jesus was just crucified and he's like oh tell me more this is jesus i just love the the irony of the story and i think what jesus is doing is he's modeling us part of what makes discipleship so powerful what can make discipleship powerful which is asking questions, because in those questions, you can open up the person on the other end to truly share what they think. And only when we know somebody in that way are we able to actually dig in and point them further to Christ. If we don't ask questions, we can approach things the wrong way. We can be so off-putting. I can be so off-putting. I have lived a life where I have just assumed I know what's best. And I'll come in and say, no, you see what it is? It's XYZ. And then it's usually met with you just have you don't understand anything, do you? Because if you ask one question, you really understand it's it's A and X and Z. And you got some of it right, but really there's something here that's that's deeper than what you know. So asking questions allows us to know. Number six, I'm sorry, number five, be patient. Be patient. Discipleship doesn't happen overnight. We see the disciples who spent three years with Jesus and his earthly ministry still struggle post-resurrection to even doubt doubting thomas to use that reference earlier he after his friends saw the resurrected christ still said you know i know i've been discipled by this guy i know he's the son of god you know i heard peter confess it and i've seen his power and you have said he's risen from the dead but i just don't know clearly the work in his heart was not yet finished even after three years He had to put his hands in christ's side and i think that just shows we need to be patient god works in each and every one of us at different uh, speeds and ultimately over our lifetime whatever he has fixed it to be whether it be 20 years or 85 years it takes time we need to be patient we need to go to every conversation then with a person in mind and say you know you might not get it today. You might tell me you don't want to get it today. And that's fine. For as long as the Spirit's putting you in my heart and you allow me to be in your life, I'm going to keep preaching the gospel by asking questions, pointing to Christ, framing up my thinking in a way that's in, that shows where I'm rooted. And this gets into point number six. We need to root our joy in Christ. This will overflow. We need to root our joy in Christ. This will overflow because as we're rooted in Christ, we will then be um, that back to that streams of living water passage pouring out into others. We need to be bold in that joy, in sharing what the source of that joy is. And I have found um, personally that in conversations I have with people who don't know or don't want to know Jesus, this is, I think, the most powerful one of all of these from a human standpoint. Because a lot of times people will just ask, how in the world do you have that perspective when things are going on the way that they are? Or, you know, how in the world can you be so, you know, can you see the good in someone that all I see is evil? so on and so on and so forth and that's that is the open door and they're the one then asking the question And that as a discipler pointing people to jesus allows us to say in that moment i'll tell you where my source of joy is and that is a powerful moment that for some people again they might say oh i didn't really want to hear that sorry i was hoping for something a little more applicable to my life um some people that is when the spirit is working in their life in that moment and they will be broken down in a good way, broken down in a good way. The walls of the hard heart will be broken down. And then just as we conclude here, we need to clarify our beliefs. And this is a really, um, this is a messy one, but I think it's an important one. Uh, A lot of people come to Christians, especially in this day and age, with preconceived notions on what they think we believe. And the world says a lot about what it thinks we believe. And some of it is true. And it's not a bad thing that they think that's, you know, bad, if you will. Some of our things that we hold up around uh, sexual ethics, some of the things we hold up around absolute good and absolute evil. But there are a lot of other things. It's like, oh, you're a Christian, so you must not believe in XYZ policy. You know, like one that's uh, present here from the last couple of weeks is, oh, you're a Christian, so you must not believe in gun control then, do you? That, you know, the the conversation can so quickly go sideways, and I'm I'm not making a statement on gun control at all. What I'm trying to say is we need to clarify our beliefs and be ready to say, these are beliefs that Jesus tells me I need to hold versus these are beliefs that I hold out of my own convictions that I have worked out to be, you know, true for, for me. And takes a lot of maturity in that, and that in and of itself is a whole sermon. And so I think it just it's important we need to be ready to clarify those beliefs and say these are the things that are absolute truth. These are the things that will give you a life that is full of flourishing, and these are the things that will not as I have read in scripture and as I'm convicted by Jesus, as we can all be convicted by Jesus in those things. And finally, and this is extremely important in our day and age of of villainization and social media, we need to see people as image bearers. Let me say that one more time. We need to see people as image bearers. We need to see people as image bearers, not as the monsters that the devil wants us to see them as as I quote scripture for we do not wage war against humans that's not quoting scripture I guess paraphrase scripture we do not wage war against humans the flesh and blood um, but against principalities behind every enemy that we have is a force of evil working through them to push back the kingdom of light the kingdom that we fight for God's kingdom that he's called us to bring here on earth as it is in heaven and the more that we let the devil win in that mission to see people as the monsters the more then that our hearts will be hardened toward them and instead, our hearts can be softened by looking at every person suffering, whether the side of the street or the person on a secular pulpit spewing some kind of hate or whatever it might be. We can look at them as the image bearers who need the love of Christ and who could be called into the love of Christ in the same way that we were called into the love of Christ. None of us is more deserving than the other. We are all here by grace. And I think recognizing the, the, the instrument of that grace can lead us all to be really humble And not be arrogant disciplers, but instead be ones who are just there to show the love of Jesus and point people to Christ. So, as I conclude here with two pastoral words and then a prayer. um, I call these pastoral words because I think these are things that are important to hold to our hearts. And again, be honest with ourselves um, as we look through what it means to make a disciple. What it means to um, go out and, and go and tell the good news of the gospel. Um, one, and this is true for, for me as it is for you, our friends are not our turf. They're God's. Everything we have. And we, we think about this sometimes with money. Oh, sure, you know, money is God's. I'll give I'll give him money. I think a lot of times we can forget that our relationships, pardon me, are just as much God's as the money that he gives us. Everything we have, he has given us for a purpose. And the more that we recognize that, paradigm the more we can think well why has he given me that relationship i guess that is weird that that person and i are friends we wouldn't normally be friends under any other context but we are why so your friends are not your turf they are gods and second god didn't save you to worry about yourself and your personal personal faith alone he saved you to go and serve others So with those two words, I want to conclude with that story that I interrupted myself with a minute ago. So put yourself in this position. It's the 90s in Washington, D.C., and there's a pastor who's a pastor in that context and lots of very highfalutin people who attend that church who are in politics. And one of these people who's one of the objects of the story is in the administration at the time, and um, he is very high up in the administration and he's been friends with a couple of Christian men for a number of years. And they've been, you know, they met through work. They met through beer. I actually don't remember what the story is, but they've been together for a while. And, uh, you know, this <clears throat> this man who's high up in, in White House politics said, you know, you, you guys, like, you're kind of cool, but I like the beers we have and the conversations we have. They're very intellectual, kind of the Mars Hill paradigm, right? Like, we like to talk about things, but I don't want any rubber meets the road moment. I want the, the intellect to be over here, and then I'm going to go do my thing away from Christ because... I don't believe in it and so there's the context and this individual who didn't have any interest in god suddenly had his life turned upside down and the bottom fell out and this actually goes to the message that we heard last week about the bottom falling out and and the the wisdom we can have in the old testament on what how we can handle ourselves through those moments and he kind of looked at his Christian friends. They were meeting together and, you know, he's like, hey guys, something terrible's happened. The bottom just fell out of my life and I think everything's uh, turning upside down. And they started talking about Jesus. And um, the guy who had the the bottom of his life fall out said, well, I don't, you know, again, I don't think I believe in Jesus at all. um, But I really like you guys and you have a lot of good wisdom. And so they just kind of said in a moment of discipleship, well, why don't you just have a Daniel moment? Put a fleece out and ask God to show you that he's calling you because it feels like the way you're talking about things like you could have just not brought this up to us we don't have to be friends it is peculiar and particular that we are friends in this moment ask god to show you he's calling you into a relationship with him he's like all right fine whatever so that you know they prayed spent some time a week later this man whose life is falling apart got on a plane to new york for an asia summit <clears throat> like a big you know kind of multi multinational meeting of world leaders and as he's getting off the plane in laguardia he gets in a cab and he's going across the bridge, and I don't remember the bridge because I don't know New York very well, but he's going across the bridge and the cabbie says, you know, this is the 90s, hey, there's a toll to pay. Um, do you wanna, you wanna pay it or do you want me to pay it and I'll pay you back or you'll pay me back? And the guy in the car says, oh, that's okay, I'll pay it. Hands the driver a $20 bill. And um, <coughs> cabbie goes through the toll and, you know, gets the change and he says, here, here's your change, hands it back to him. And he <laughs> takes the, the pile of $1 bills And in the top, the very top dollar bill in Sharpie is written, God loves you. And he said in that moment, he broke down in tears because he's like, I've gotten thousands of $1 bills in my life. I've taken that toll bridge hundreds of times and never have I ever in any world ever gotten a dollar bill that tells me that Jesus loves me. And he said at that moment, he just knew the Spirit was calling him into a relationship, and that's where I think <clears throat> we need to recognize the work that God does in partnership with the work that we can do. And that story illustrates a lot of what I said. It's you know opening yourself up to inconveniences, sharing a table with someone, asking questions, um, rooting your joy in Christ, being bold to share where that joy comes from. And all of this can culminate in the powerful work of the Spirit doing what he does best, which is being the hound of heaven, calling people back, into a relationship with God so we can experience true human flourishing both now and in the age to come. So let's pray. Jesus, would you please uh, perfect these words? uh, as Again, as people need it, would you encourage and admonish? And most importantly, would you please root our joy in you, Jesus, that we might see the work that you are doing in each of our lives. Would you point us to the way in which we can fulfill uh, your great commission, that we might go and make disciples of all nations, might might we, God, be a blessing to the city of West Seattle and beyond. I also just thank you for this church. I thank you for these people, um, for these who love Jesus in such a difficult context to love Jesus. Would you please give us an extra dose of encouragement this week uh, for the work that you have for us to do here in the city, in our homes, in our workplaces, and in our communities? And it is in your name that I pray these things. Amen.